Hello and welcome to the History of the Copts, episode 25, The Council of Ephesus. Last time we stopped with Theodosius II ordering a universal council to be assembled in the city of Ephesus, halfway between Constantinople and Alexandria. The emperor sent a letter to Bob Cyril, as well as all the metropolitan bishops of the empire ordering them to assemble in Ephesus on June 7, 431 AD, on the Feast of the Pentecost, which is 50 days after Easter. Hoping to get a leg up, Nestorius left Constantinople immediately after Easter, and he was the first to arrive at Ephesus with 16 of his loyal bishops and a palace official responsible for the practical arrangement of the council as well as keeping the peace. On his arrival, Nestorius found the bishop of Ephesus and an impressive group of 40 bishops who were all hostile to him, and the churches of Ephesus closed their doors to Nestorius. Rather than seeing the writing on the wall and backing down, Nestorius doubled down and managed to alienate even more people by giving a very controversial sermon, which he maintained that the infant Jesus, while he was three months old, should not be referred to as God. And after that, he lost at least two bishops that originally supported him. Next, a few days before the appointed date of June 7th, Pope Cyril arrived with 50 Egyptian bishops and a group of royal monks headed by Shenouda the Archimenidrite. Then, five days after the deadline, the bishop of Jerusalem, Juvenal, arrived with 16 of his bishops, who were also much more sympathetic to Pope Cyril than Nestorius. So, thus far in Ephesus are assembled more than a hundred bishops, who were already hostile to Nestorius, compared to his small group of less than 20 bishops. Nonetheless, the delegation from Antioch and the Babel legates from Rome have not arrived yet, and in them Nostorius saw a small ray of hope, particularly from the delegation in Antioch, as this was his home city. In Antioch, the theological sort have developed somewhat independent of Alexandria, and there there was a lot of emphasis on the human nature of Christ and the ethical perspective of his life as a role model. Nestorius needed the Antiochian delegation to come, and then, using them as a block sympathetic to him, he can make a serious case against Cyril, or at least walk away with the block and delegitimize the council. Almost two weeks passed beyond the deadline, and still there was no word from Antioch. While waiting for the council to start, we do not have much in concrete evidence about what was happening while the bishops were waiting. There is an interesting account in the Coptic life of Shenouda about the mood in Ephesus during this time. Now to be clear, this account is not reported anywhere else, and the life of Shenouda as an accurate historical source of information is debatable, so bear that in mind. According to the life, in one of the meetings prior to the council, 
several chairs were present for the bishops to be seated, and one of the chairs had the Gospels on it. Nestorius, when he came, he sat down and removed the Gospels. And then, to quote Risa's account, My father, Abba Shenouda, saw what Nestorius had done. He made haste, leapt up in righteous anger in the midst of our holy fathers, seized the Gospels, took them from the ground, and he smote that embiased Nestorius on his breast. The shocked Nestorius responded by asking, What is your business in the midst of the Synod? For you are not a bishop, nor you are an Archimenedrite, nor are you a priest, but you are nothing but a monk. I am he, replied Chinuda, whom God has sent to unmask your wickedness and proclaim your punishment. It is at this point Bobsar intervened. He handed Chinuda the cross he was wearing, as well as his staff, proclaiming him an Archimenedrite, or a head of a monastery. I record this story mainly because I am not giving Shinuta his due regarding how influential he was on shaping the Coptic identity. By his presence in the council, he likely to have contributed in the theological discussion and influenced the results. Also, I am of the opinion that the specific story is likely a legend that sprang up much later. I have no doubt that Nestorius was an important man as the Bishop of Constantinople, guarded by a cohort of soldiers who would not let a monk assault him. This is just my opinion, so. Anyway, by June 21st, 15 days post the appointed time, the Bishop of Antioch had not made an appearance yet, but an advanced party of his group arrived. The advanced party told Bobsero that John, the Bishop of Antioch's journey, had been very difficult and he's still about a week behind. And crucially, they also told him that John said, if I am late, do what you must do. Now, whatever that message meant that if I am late beyond the one week, go ahead and start the council, or if you see fit, then start now, is up for debate. But Bobsero took the message as a permission to start without him. Without the Antakian delegation, Nestorius had no chance of surviving the council, and as such, Bobsero decided to call the council on the following day, after receiving the Bishop of Antioch's letter. Not everyone present saw that this is the best course of action, and 68 bishops signed a letter to Bobsero, urging him to wait for Antioch. But the council started anyway. As we will see, that action will come back to haunt Pope Cyril for a long time. And really, it was his only misstep during the events that surrounded the council. Not to go too deep in great canon law areas, but generally speaking, council decisions should be agreed on by all the bishops attendant, and whoever does not agree is excommunicated. Middle ground was not an option. So essentially, there cannot be partial agreements or disagreements with no excommunication as a result. Having both the Bishop of Constantinople and Antioch as centers and excommunicating both of them would be very politically difficult to achieve. 
So starting without Antioch solves this issue. Not to mention, without Antioch, Bob Searle would be the undisputed council president, thus in theory shape its agenda. Once the council started, Bob Searle proceeded very carefully, knowing that any irregularities would probably cause the emperor to invalidate the council since he was well inclined toward Nestorius. An Alexandrian priest was assigned to be the chief scribe and the secretary of the council, and the priest, at least on the surface, directed the agenda as a neutral party. Now remember, the bishops did not come to the council to negotiate a middle ground. They came to recognize and under the Holy Spirit affirm the true face and exclude the heretics. Thus, things moved very quickly, despite the protests of the imperial officer that came with Nestorius. The bishop assembled in the cathedral of Ephesus, in the great church of St. Mary the Seodokos, on Monday, June 22nd. Nestorius naturally did not come, and a delegation was sent to him before the official business of the council starts. A group of soldiers were ordered by Nestorius to not let the bishops that were sent to invite him in, and after the official invitation, the council started by the afternoon. The Alexandrian priest read a summary of why they are there, and an official explanation was recorded in the minutes on why the council started without the Antiochian delegation. Sixteen days have passed, pointed out the Bishop of Jerusalem, with many bishops feeling sick and some even dying, added Pope Cyril. Then the council moved on the point of the absence of Nestorius, and several Egyptian bishops intervened with the fact that Nestorius was summoned three times, which was canonically the required numbers before judging the matter in his absence. Then the face creed of Nicaea was read out, followed by Pope Cyril's letters to Nestorius. The bishop were then asked to vote what either Pope Cyril's were orthodox or not, to which the bishop of Jerusalem and 124 other bishops testified that it is. Then Nestorius's letter that was in response to Pope Cyril was read, and again the bishops were asked to express judgment. The verdict this time was, quote, If anyone does not excommunicate Nestorius, let him be excommunicated. Then, the papal letter from Rome was read to incorporate it into the minutes, as well as a couple of Pope Cyril's theological letters condemning Nestorius. It was very clear that the bishops understood the historical significance of that universal council, and no evidence were spared in condemning Nestorius to make sure it sticks for future generations. Several more details were then recorded, including select passages of the fathers of the church, as Bob Sarah called them, was much provided from St. Athanasius's writing. By the end of the day, Bob Searles, as the council president, asked the bishops, Is it your wish to affirm 
the primitive doctrine of the faith and depose the innovator? To which all 197 bishops present agreed and put their signature to the written record. For a moment it seemed that everything had fallen into lie, and only after a day of deliberation Pope Cyril emerged victorious and notorious to boast. The Ephesians celebrated, final touches were put in on the paperwork, work, and the Egyptian delegation was making plans to go home. Letters were sent to Nestorius, addressing him as the new Judas and deposing him. Letters were also being sent to the emperor and some of the more influential monks in Constantinople. Bobsero calculated correctly that by enlisting the influential monks of the capital, he would pressure Theodosius to ratify the council, even if he necessarily did not want to depose Nestorius. Of course, the emperor had received his own reports from the official there, as well as a version of events according to Nestorius. Anyway, when the council decision reached Constantinople, Theodosius did not take any actions, perhaps waiting for more information. But when it reached the monks at Constantinople, things were different. Upon hearing the news, the monks left their monasteries and headed to the palace, being lit by an influential hermit who had not left his cell for 48 years. Seeing them, it was a clear statement to the imperial officers and the inhabitants of the capital that the holy men of the time, the monks, wholeheartedly supported the council. The emperor had to go out and meet their leaders in person, which was followed by a fiery sermon from the legendary hermit who was not seen in close to 50 years condemning Nestorius. While this drama was unfolding in Constantinople, John, the bishop of Antioch, arrived in Ephesus with a delegation of about 30 bishops on June 26, four days after the council was concluded. Upon finding out that Pope Cyril had started the council without him, he was furious and decided to hold his own council with the bishops supporting Nestorius. Again, very quickly, the 42 bishops assembled with John and Nestorius declared Pope Cyril and the Bishop of Ephesus heretics and sent a report with their finding to Constantinople. So, to summarize, we have 197 bishops with Pope Cyril condemning Nestorius and 42 bishops from Antioch and Constantinople condemning Pope Cyril. The populace, the monks, and the imperial family in Constantinople are essentially anti-Nestorius. Was the emperor the only person who have not officially condemned him yet? Anyway, when Theodosius received the report of the counter-synod, he was not happy. No consensus have been reached like he hoped for, and either way, a significant faction of his empire would be alienated. So naturally, he decided to invalidate both councils and send another palace official to investigate things on the ground. 
Before the new palace official arrived in Ephesus, so, the delegation for Rome finally arrived on July 10th. They were decidedly pro Cyril, and to help solidify their support, Pope Cyril decided to reassemble the council, specifically for the bishops to hear the opinion of the Bishop of Rome. Now, this was a very smart diplomatic move that ensured that Rome would take Pope Cyril's side. Not to give things away, but in a few episodes, when another universal council will assemble, the Roman delegation would be ignored, and this will cause some major issues. The reassembling was entirely symbolic, so, and no new major actions were decided. By the beginning of August, the palace official from Constantinople have arrived, and he immediately put Pope Cyril, the Bishop of Ephesus, and Nestorius under arrest. He decided that the best way to solve the issue was to send seven bishops from each side to represent their views and have the emperor decide directly. When they went, the party sympathetic to Nestorius that in order for their theology to survive, they have to abandon the person of Nestorius, as the emperor was not interested in reinstating him. So Odysseus's hand was essentially forced to abandon Nestorius, with pressure from the monks and his older sister. Thus, the end result was somewhat confusing. Nestorius' disposition was confirmed, and a new bishop of Constantinople was assigned. But theologically, the emperor did not decide for one party over another. He simply ordered that all the bishops were to go home and resume their duties. So both John of Antioch and Cyril of Alexandria went back to resuming their duties by the end of October. Even so, technically, they have just excommunicated each other. The council at the time, for all practical purposes, have failed. Sure, Nestorius was removed, but the divisions stayed and magnified. To give him credit, so, Bob Cyril bent over backward, trying to reconcile to John of Antioch. First, excellent relationship was established with the new bishop of Constantinople. Then, a long apology letter was addressed to Theodosius from Bob Cyril regarding the incidents of Bob Cyril sending different letters to the imperial family. Clearly, the emperor was not well inclined to Bob Cyril as a person, and probably he did not like or understand his theology. Anyway, as a result of the letter, another imperial officer was tasked with trying to achieve unity and a theological statement that could solve the problem. The solution that was on the table was for a face-to-face -face discussion between Pope Cyril and John in front of the emperor. This was really a bad idea as far as Pope Cyril was concerned. First, by agreeing to the meeting, he would automatically forfeit the legitimacy of the Council of Ephesus. Second, knowing that the emperor 
did not necessarily like him, there was a serious chance of him being deposed himself as a result of that meeting. In a fascinating letter between the Archdeacon of Alexandria and the Bishop of Constantinople, we know at this time Pope Cyril was in a state of anxiety and depression, worrying about his fate. We also know from that letter that the Bishop of Constantinople was directed by the Archdeacon to work behind the scenes to influence the imperial policy. Now, that behind the scenes work was mostly financial gifts to certain officials. If you are concerned that those gifts are essentially a bribe, then let's just say that they were political contribution, a 5th century superback equivalent if you wish. The gifts, as well as the abolition letter, had the desired effect. The face-to-face -face meeting was off, and Seidosius declared that John of Antioch should agree to Nestorius' removal and reject his theology. But perhaps wisely, he did not force John's hand. Rather, he enlisted a couple of neutral respected bishops with the help of a palace official. Then, several letters went back and forth between Antioch and Alexandria. Eventually, the two sides agreed. Bob Cyril refined some of the wording that the Antiochians had a problem with, and the Antiochians, led by Jean, officially condemned Nestorius and his heresy. Now, I am going to quote part of the final letter that Bob Cyril sent to Jean, after which John was satisfied and agreed to the language of the letter and condemned Nestorius. The letter is known as the formula of the reunion. The exact wording will become significant in future episodes. Anyway, the letter reads, Accordingly, we acknowledge that our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, to be perfect God and perfect man, made up of soul, endowed with reason, and of body, begotten of the Father, before the ages, in respect of his Godhead, and the same born in the last days for us and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin in respect of his manhood. Consubstantial was the Father in Godhead, and consubstantial was us in manhood. A union of two natures have been effected, and therefore we confess one Christ, one Son, one Lord. By virtue of this understanding of the union, which involves no merging, we acknowledge that the Holy Virgin to be Seodokos, because God the Word was made flesh and became man, and united to himself the temple he took from her as a result of her conception. As for the terms used about the Lord in the Gospels and the Apostolic writings, we recognize that theologians to read some as shared because they refer to one person, some they refer separately to two natures, traditionally teaching the application of the divine terms to Christ's Godhead and the lowly to his manhood. 
If you are wondering why I bothered with quoting this letter, trust me, it will become very clear in the next Christological issue. For the careful listener, you will notice how the term a union of two natures have slipped in there. So now we have Bobsra saying one incarnate nature of God the Word that is fully human and fully divine to describe Christ from last episode, and a union of two natures have been affected, and therefore we confess one Christ, one Son, one Lord. So, which one is it now? One nature or two natures? I will not attempt to answer that, at least in this episode. But I will just say that for many, many, many years, several writings would be taken out of context and adopted to whatever idea one wishes to circulate. But as you have been listening, you probably now realize that things were complicated, and the geopolitics of the Roman Empire, transformed into a Christian empire, had much to do with what was being said and agreed to. As for several actual views, I could not find better words to describe them as the words of Norman Russell. Quote, he was well aware of the limitation of language and happy to accept a variety of approaches provided the essential truths were safeguarded. End quote. The essential truth here being Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. Now, this was by no means the end of the story. Bob Searle still had more than a decade left in his reign. Also, I never really went through what ended up happening to Nestorius after his removal. It is a quite a story as well. Let's just say that he and Shinuda the Archimedrite would meet again, but I doubt that either of them were happy about that. That story will be for next week as well as a quick overview of what was happening in the empire beyond the Christological controversies. Apparently, while Theodosius was busy planning for the Council of Ephesus, a big chunk of the empire was lost to Aryan Germanic tribes. Farewell, and until next week. Mm-hmm.